Today marks the uh, beginning of a new little series, mini-series that we're going to be doing here at Foundation Church. Three weeks on three momentous occasions within the story of Christianity. Three, three occasions within what you call the church calendar as well. If you follow uh, sort of the ancient church liturgical calendar, you'll find out that on Thursday past was a day called Ascension Day. And then next Sunday is a day called Pentecost Sunday. And the following Sunday after that is called Trinity Sunday. So we have these three Sundays, if you like, back to back, looking at these three big moments or movements or doctrines, if you like, uh, that are so important to the Christian faith. And so today we're looking at this idea of ascension, the ascension of Jesus. And the, the passage that Sharon has just read to us um, is from uh, the book of Acts, the beginning of the book of Acts, the, the introduction, if you like, uh, talking about the ascension of Jesus. So we're going to look um, at this passage in a few, under a few headings, four headings. Number one, we're going to look at the facts of the uh, ascension. Number two, we're going to be looking at the theology of the ascension of Jesus. Thirdly, we're going to be looking at the blessing of the ascension. And fourthly and finally, we're going to be looking at the application of ascension. Okay? So the facts, the theology, the blessing, and the application in that order. So let's think first of all about the facts of the, the ascension, because once we understand what we're talking about and the, the historic uh, thing that happened, then we can start to understand what it means to us and how that influences us today as a church and as people of God. So... The passage that Sharon's just read for us is, is written by Luke, uh, almost like his second part or second volume in his two-volume work. He wrote the gospel according to Luke, that was his own work, and then he wrote part two, which is Acts. And the interesting thing between both of these things is that the moment that unifies those two books is this moment that we're looking at this evening, the ascension of Jesus the book of Acts finishes with the ascension of Jesus. Sorry, uh, the Luke finishes with the ascension of Jesus. The book of Acts starts with the ascension of Jesus. So clearly in Luke's mind, this thing we're looking at today is pretty important. It's the hinge around which his two books work. Anyway, look down uh, as we go. We're going to be looking through a few of these verses. We're not going to be spending a lot of time in the first sort of uh, six or seven verses. Uh, but anyway, just want to set the scene about what we're looking at. Uh, book, the book was written uh, to a man called Theophilus uh, and Luke writes, I have already dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so the book of Acts then continues everything else that Jesus does and teaches through his apostles and that's what that's all about. And look down at verse 3, it says, um, he presented himself to them, that is Jesus, to his disciples alive after his suffering by many proofs and speaking uh, during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. It wasn't that Jesus necessarily was with them constantly for 40 days, but over that 40-day period, he made multiple appearances to them and spoke to them, it says there in verse 3 at the end, about the kingdom of God. He, he met with them. He, he, he spoke with them. He ate food with them. He taught them over 40 days. And at the end of all this, he reminded them, wait, it says in verse 4, for that promise, the promise from the Father, the promise of the, the Holy Spirit. We're going to be looking at that more next week. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, he says in verse 8, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So that was the, the summary of Jesus teaching to them at that time. Okay, And then it gets to the account of the ascension proper in verse 9. 
It says that as he said these things, and as they were looking on, as, as the disciples were looking at Jesus, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. They physically saw him being lifted up. The bit that Luke doesn't mention here, and he mentions in his gospel account, in the end of Luke's gospel, he says that as Jesus went up, he opened his arms and he blessed them like a priest. And so he was blessing them as he was taken up before their very eyes. He was carried into heaven. Their final memory, therefore, of Jesus was of him blessing them with his arms open wide. I love that. And it says then, in, in, back in the Acts uh, version, uh, a cloud took him out of their sight and they were left gazing into heaven. I love this. I don't, I don't know, sometimes if, some, if you're out on a nice sunny day and someone says, ooh, look, look at that aeroplane or look at that bird, isn't that amazing? And, and it, you're sort of scanning the sky to try and identify where is this thing that someone else can obviously see and I can't. And look at that funny cloud. It looks like a, you know, like a chicken or something. And you're, you're scanning around. And I just get the feeling that's probably what was going on when they were stood there gazing into, there he is. You know, the apostles would say, no, no, that's him over there. But it says that he was taken from their sight uh, behind a cloud. And these two men dressed in white, they're not identified as angels, but uh, pretty much men who suddenly appear who are dressed in white are angels, said to those who are looking, just scanning the sky, trying to see, where, where's he gone? Is he over behind that cloud or this one? I, I didn't see. These two men dressed in white said, men of Galilee, you disciples, he said, why, why are you stood there looking up into heaven? He said, this man, Jesus, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come back the same way that you saw him go. This Jesus, this Jesus that you've just literally seen, him will come, he will come back the same way you saw him go. That's important for later. See, Christianity is a historical religion, right? His Christianity hinges on historic events, real life situations that actually happened. You could set your clock if you could go back in time to the exact time and place and actually see these things taking place with your own eyes. You could go back and see the life of Jesus, his death and his resurrection and by the same token, his ascension was something that can be physically seen, actually occurred one day in history. And it says here that it was witnessed, you know, we see here in this, this Acts um, account, witnessed by at least the 11 apostles, probably others as well, other disciples that were with him. And that was important. Eyewitnesses to this event that we're now thinking about. You know, Jesus seemed to have come and go over that 40-day period. He, he could have just sort of come and then gone again and suddenly vanished and that would be it. But he didn't. This departure was different from those other appearances. This departure was final. It was public. They had to see him go before their eyes. They had to know that he wasn't coming back anytime soon. They had to know that this was an end of an era. No longer would Jesus in his flesh be with them on the earth. And they had to see that so that they would know that there is another event happening, another age about to dawn upon them. This is kind of odd isn't it this is odd for us as as modern people in our scientific age to think of a man a human being sort of levitating in front of us and then going up up and up and up to the clouds and then suddenly disappearing 
This is not something we see very often in our own experience, um, obviously, if ever. It's just a weird thing. But to the, the Jews, those people who originally sought Jesus, to those people, it's not as odd as it might appear or seem to you and me. In fact, the, the Hebrew scriptures contain a number of occasions when incredibly godly men were taken up to heaven without dying first. The most key and obvious uh, example of that was the great prophet Elijah. You can read the account in the book of Kings, 1 Kings. No, 2 Kings. Anyway, one of those, one of those two. The great prophet Elijah, at the end of his life, at the end of his prophetic career, it says he was, he was eventually taken up into heaven by chariots of fire and horses of fire and a whirlwind came. Now, I don't know how the fire and the whirlwind worked together, but it did. And it came and took him up to heaven. In fact, that's interesting. Fire and wind, we'll see that next week on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit comes down. Those two things. Anyway, it happens. And so to the Hebrew mind, this is something that only happens to the most extraordinary godly individuals you can ever think of. And it happens right here to Jesus the Messiah, taken up before their very eyes into heaven. You see, to the Hebrew mind, to the Jewish mind, God is above, he is high, he is up there, and we are below, we are down here. And between the two, there is a great massive gulf, a massive space. And to go to God, therefore, someone has to ascend. They have to go up. Whether it's going up to Jerusalem to worship God in the temple, or in the case of Jesus, going up to the right hand of the Father at the ascension. It's all about going up. And so we see Jesus here, this event was viewed by a handful of people, a dozen, two dozen maybe. It was witnessed by them and the important thing that they were told is that Jesus, that same Jesus, will come back the same way you saw him go. And this might ring a few bells if you've been with us for the last few uh, weeks. We've been going through 1 Thessalonians and um, you know, we've talked about the day of the Lord. We've, we've thought about the coming of the Lord. And so that's sort of meshing with what we're seeing here. That same Jesus will come back the same way you saw him go. So we've seen something about the facts of the ascension and, and where we get this whole doctrine from. Let's move now to the, the theology of the ascension because we need to start asking, what does it mean? What does it mean? Christians, I think it's fair to say, especially us uh, as evangelicals, we, we focus very much on the, on the cross of Christ and, and on his resurrection. And that's, that's a good thing. That is the, the central thing that we need to focus on. But the Bible gives us a, a broader story as well, a broader picture upon which to understand the cross and the resurrection. This great plan of salvation that God has for his people includes the cross and resurrection, but there are other events that also take place in that big picture. You may have heard me try to sketch the big picture before, but just uh, in case you're unfamiliar with it, this is roughly the big picture of God's salvation storyline in the Bible. It starts like this. God existed as a trinity, as three persons in one, perfect love, perfect delight, perfect joy in one another. And yet, God decided to create 
the heavens and the earth and everything in them. He decided to create so that he might love, sorry, uh, to demonstrate his love, that he might delight in his creation, that his creation might reflect something of his glory. And so God created humankind, it says, in his own image. And when God created man and woman, he said they are very good. They're very good. Man and woman, human beings, were created to reflect God to the rest of creation. They were created to lead creation. They were created to cultivate, to bring flourishing up out of the ground. Essentially, they were to bring heaven, a taste of heaven, down to earth. They were to live in intimacy and fellowship with their creator God. The early parts of the Bible present us with this beautiful, balanced picture of this relationship between humankind and God. But that story goes on to show that that relationship was unbalanced. It became corrupted because of sin. And sin came into the picture. But God planned to save his people rather than destroy them and and wipe them out. Start again. God decided to come into the world to rescue them and to restore them. To put them back again. And so the Son of God himself, God, came down, took upon himself human nature, it says. He lived a human life. He died a death on the cross. He rose on the third day. And as we come to this section today, he ascended back to the Father. And as we'll see next week, he then poured out his Holy Spirit upon the church for them to continue his mission. Don't forget, uh, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. There is more to come. And so he pours out his Spirit. And one day, as we've just read, he will come again to bring the new heavens and the new earth to bear. And so hopefully you can see in that, that, that brief sketch of that overarching storyline of the Bible, the, the importance of the ascension of Jesus, the, the rising up, the going back to the Father, the sitting at the right hand of, of the Father. Because if you see, there's, if there's no ascension, then there's no sending of the Holy Spirit. There's no Pentecost to come afterwards. If there's no ascension, then there's no salvation for us. Because you see, without Jesus ascending and pouring his spirit, that stuff he did on the cross, that death and resurrection would just remain out there. It would remain separate. Instead, he rose and then poured out his spirit and with it, the blessings, the effects of his death and resurrection upon the church. In short, we cannot be Christians without the ascension of Jesus. We cannot think about being rescued or restored or any of those blessings if it's not for the ascension of Jesus. So far from being a little dusty old doctrine that's tucked away in the church calendar, the ascension of Jesus is essential for us, for our lives, for our salvation. The theology of ascension. Thirdly, we're going to move now to the blessing of ascension. What good does it do, if you like, if we can use that term? Ascension is important, it's crucial for us as Christians, but there's more. Because the ascension is more than just a step in the chain that we just have to get through in order to get the blessing. The ascension provides us with ongoing benefits if we understand it rightly and we understand what Jesus is doing right now as we stand here talking. Remember, when Jesus went up, as Luke tells us at the end of his gospel account, he had his arms out wide. He he was blessing his people like a priest as he ascended. That was their last memory of him, was his blessing, actively blessing them. 
Don't forget, Jesus is God who took upon himself human flesh. Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. And so let's think of the blessing that we receive from the ascension in terms of his divinity, his godness, and his humanity, his humanness. So first of all, the ascended Jesus, number one, is God. Let's think of the blessings that that can bring us. And folks, I'm, I'm just sketching out some of these things here. There's so much more to it than what I'm saying, but I'm just trying to give you a rough idea of where, where the Bible lands on this important doctrine. The ascended Jesus is God. Uh, let me read from Ephesians 1. The Apostle Paul says this, God raised him, that is Jesus, from the dead, and look, look he, he, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church. The ascended Jesus is God. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and he is above all things. And all means all. Everything is under the lordship of Jesus. He is over all, that includes all power structures, all authority, all rules, all enemies, all names that you can think of. Both amazing names and evil names and everything you can construct. Jesus is above all of that from his position at the right hand of God the Father. And as such, from that position, the ascended Jesus protects his people, his church. There, there is nothing, because of that, there is nothing that can come against them. There is no enemy that can ultimately destroy them because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is victorious. And he shares that with his people. You might be struggling uh, just now somehow in your, in your life, in your, in, your, in your faith, with circumstances that seem beyond your control. But the fact that Jesus is ascended and he is God goes to show that no ultimate harm will come to you. No ultimate harm will come to you. He is overall. No ultimate defeat will come to you because Jesus is victorious. And that is the end of it. So Jesus is God and from there he is over all things and he protects his church. But the second thing we want to think about in terms of blessing is that Jesus, the ascended Jesus, is not only God, the ascended Jesus is a human being. Just like all of us sat in this room, the ascended Jesus is a human being. You may struggle to accept that. Certainly if you've been brought up around church circles, um, we can almost be okay with the idea that Jesus is God somewhere up there in heaven. But he is still a human being somewhere up there in heaven. He's fully God and yet he's fully human. This same Jesus who you saw will one day come again. Why is that important? Why is it important to know the right now, as surely as I speak to you, Jesus remains in the flesh. He remains with, a, with the human nature. He has united himself to that. Sometimes we think that the Jesus 
maybe after a hard day's work, after he ascended back to the Father, he sort of un- unzipped his humanity. And he went back to the good old days before that stuff kind of stuck on, you know, just removing the outer garments and then being back with the Father. But that's not what we get from the Bible. This same Jesus will return. Don't forget, when I tried to sketch that big storyline of of, of God's salvation plan, humankind was originally created to know God, to be in fellowship with God, to, to enjoy him, to live in intimacy with him, to live in his ongoing presence. But as we saw, sin corrupted that. That relationship was uh, disrupted. But at the ascension of Jesus, the human being, we can, we can look at him with eyes of faith and we can say, look and see him up there. Because in Jesus right now, we have in heaven human flesh, humanity, in the presence of God, right now. Jesus, yes, he is glorious. Yes, he is divine. Yes, he enjoys the countless praises of the angels in heaven. Yes, but he is also one of us. He is flesh and blood, just as we are. And so when we look at Jesus with the eyes of faith, we see there is a human being living, surviving, thriving in the presence of God. Jesus gives us a glimpse of how it should have been before our sin came and destroyed that relationship. When we see Jesus now in heaven, we get a glimpse of how it will be for us one day. Folks, this is almost an unbelievable hope that we have because Jesus ascended as a human being. When we look at Jesus, we realize the foretaste of what it would be like in heaven, that it's possible for a human being to not only survive in the searing glory of the presence of God, but to flourish and delight Jesus is doing that right now and he invites us into that relationship through his cross, through his righteousness. That's where we're heading for those of us who trust in Christ. That's why Paul can say elsewhere in Ephesians 2, he said, God has raised us up with Jesus and seated us with him in the heavenly places. That is mad. He says elsewhere, for you died, but your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christian, if you trust in Jesus Christ, you are spiritually present with him before God right now. Right now. Yes, in one sense, we are down here. We're in Belfast. We're we're doing life. We are struggling against sin. We, we, we feel like we're being defeated from time to time. We, we sense in our bodies weakness. But if you're a believer in Jesus, you are already with Jesus in heaven. And it is the, the, the center, if you like, of the Christian hope, this great hope. That one day this spiritual reality 
will become a physical reality where you and I will actually not only be able to stand in the presence of God, but delight and thrive in his presence. We've seen the facts of the ascension. We've seen the theology of ascension, that important link, if you like, in the chain. We've just been thinking about the blessings of ascension, that Jesus as God shares his authority and gives his authority, and Jesus as God is human flesh. Let's think about the application and how can we really bring some of these truths home in a way that's going to shape us in our thinking and in our lives. What does this mean to us now? It's all very well having these amazing stirring doctrines, isn't it? But we have to understand uh, how they work, how, what sort of effect they may produce in our lives. So let's think about it in these three ways. Number one, we can tell because of the doctrine of ascension that God cares about your humanity and so should you. God cares about your humanity and so should you. We've seen that human beings, when they were created by God, were declared very good. They were made in the image of God. And so that remains true for you today. Remember, Jesus didn't unzip his flesh when he got back home. He remained permanently united to human flesh. And that points to us and and reminds us that God cares about your humanness. He cares about your body and he cares about your soul. No matter what situation or experiences or sins you have committed, it still remains true that God cares about your humanity. Your humanity is body and soul and Jesus came to save both on the cross. One day we will die and go into the ground. But as we saw in 1 Thessalonians, we will be raised physically. Raised. Different and yet still the same. God cares about your humanity, so should you. That means you should honour your body. Treat it with respect. Be careful how you use it. Because it, your body, you were made to image God, to point to his glory and his greatness in some small and yet beautiful way. Your body is a gift from God. And so we shouldn't think of our bodies too highly, but neither should we think of our bodies too lowly and despise them. You have been created in God's image And he loves both your body and your soul, and Jesus came to save both. You hear a lot of talk these days in in, in popular media about body image, the concepts of body image, affecting both men and women, let's face it, and the younger you are, the seems to be the more powerful those messages are about body image. The idea being that there is such a thing as an ideal shape that you must have to be acceptable and lovely and gorgeous. You must look a certain way to get places in this world, to meet the right guy or girl. There's even a a certain way that you must feel that encapsulates this idea of body image. And yet, our understanding of body image 
if we allow the world to form it. Not only is it a very powerful drive, but it is ultimately devastating. It is an impossible reality. Because if you are driven to being a certain look, feeling a certain way that the world tells you you must be, you will end up feeling empty and ugly because you're never matching up or worthless because you're never good enough. You're never going to make the grade in the world's eyes. If let, left to his own devices, this will go down the road of self-harm, self-neglect, or obsessions with body image, or exercise, or eating, or any such thing. But when we look at the ascension of Jesus, when we know that God cares about your humanity, he gives us the true body image. We have seen already this glimpse of the future restoration of our bodies that is promised to us and assured and sealed for us because Jesus ascended to his Father. We have seen what our bodies are made for, for the glory of God, what we're destined for in his presence. That is the biblical life-giving body image that we need to allow to interpret ourselves over and above what Instagram or Facebook or Hollywood tells us we must look like. God cares about your body enough to unite himself to our flesh. So let's allow this to determine how we view ourselves in our own skin. God cares about your humanity, so should you. The second application that this doctrine gives us, <clears throat> number two, God cares about all humanity, and therefore so should we. Every person has been made in the image of God. Right? We're all image bearers of God, irrespective of race or religion or orientation or socioeconomic status or developmental status. Every person irrespective of age or stage in the womb or age or stage in the nursing home is made in the image of God. And that means that when we meet a need because God cares about all humanity so should we. When we meet a need we are driven to help. We are driven to minister to that need. And we minister to that person in body and in soul to their body and to their soul. Churches, state organizations, non-profit organizations will either veer to one side or the other, most often. They'll either veer to body care and give practical material support, and that's good, and that's right. Or they'll veer to the other side and, and just look at a person as just a bit of flesh with a spirit and a soul in them and that's the soul we care about and so therefore we, we preach the gospel to them and we neglect the fact that they are also a body. But the doctrine of ascension does not give us as a church a choice between the two. We minister to people in body, in their bodies, we minister to people in their souls, to their souls. We care for the hungry, 
We befriend the lonely. We engage with the broken. And as we do so, we share them Jesus. We tell them the gospel. And that's why I love CAP so much, Christians Against Poverty, because they do both so well. They offer real, practical, life-changing help for debt, isolation, life skills, but yet they are unapologetic about telling people about Jesus. In fact, on that point, would you pray for James and would you pray for me as we meet, um, when is it, Saturday? Saturday? To talk about CAP and to, to work out about our next run and to try and think of good strategies in order to build our, our impact in the area. So pray for us. But beyond that, beyond CAP, our vision as a church, I believe God is leading us more and more to become a church of mercy, a church that reaches the lowly and the lost and brings to them the good news of Jesus in word and with deed. So we've seen first application, God cares about your humanity, so should you. God cares about all humanity and so should we. And thirdly and finally, God lives with humanity. And we've seen that Jesus, the God-man, is living with God right now. A human being at God's right hand. Jesus, who are, is our representative. He is representing humanity to God. And so as we've been saying so far in this talk, if you are united to Jesus, if you have faith in Jesus, then you too are represented before God the Father right now. And this, you see, is really good news if at any time in your Christian life you are feeling far from God. If you're feeling distant from him either because you have sinned or you feel full of guilt for previous sins or circumstances going on in your life if they're pulling you away. If you believe in Jesus, the reality is, folks, that you are not far away from him at all. You are right in the presence of God and you will remain there for eternity. God lives with humanity. You see, there is a big difference. Even if you haven't done a degree in meteorology, you'll know there's a big difference between clouds and the darkness. Both clouds and darkness can produce the same effect, which is no light, right? Clouds, though, are different because they obscure the sun. The sun is still up there but the clouds just block that sun for a moment. It's kind of like sometimes if you're taking off on a, a rainy, dingy, dark, old day from Belfast International, and you're up on your EasyJet flight, and up you go and it's real bumpy because of the rain, and the, the, you're going right through the middle of the cloud. But then that joyful moment when you, you burst through the upper levels of the cloud, and it's like you have just arrived on a different planet. Because suddenly there is sun, glorious sun as far as you can see, and blue sky. And except for that stuff which is under you, there is nothing but golden sunshine burning a hole in your eyes. You see, clouds bring darkness, but they're just obscuring the sun. The sun's still there, never left. Darkness is different. Darkness is dark because there just is no sun there at all. There's no sun up there, there's no light in the sky. 
See, the difference between clouds and darkness is that for believers in Jesus, all you will ever have to deal with in your life is clouds. You will never be in a place of darkness. Never. Because of the ascension. Because Jesus, the human being, ascended to the right hand of God the Father. Even though you may feel far from God, depressed in spirit, groveling along the ground because of your sin, weighed down by your guilt, if you are a believer in Jesus, that is just a cloud that obscures your view. The reality is that you are right above the clouds in Jesus. It means if you are in him by faith, he hears you. It means you can cry to him and he knows what's going on. You are never in the darkness because of Jesus. You're never out of his presence. The glory of the ascension shows that you are eternally loved by God. Everything else is just a cloud. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that Jesus on that day in Palestine several thousand years ago, having met with his disciples, ascended in front of their very eyes up into the heavens and took a seat at your right hand. We thank you that you gave him at that moment, conferred upon him as he ascended to the throne, all authority in heaven and on earth. Father, may we here this evening look up with eyes of faith, look beyond the clouds and see Jesus sat at your right hand, bearing our flesh in his body, right next to you. Father, for those of us who feel far from you just now, who feel, feel like we're in darkness, would you burn through that cloud by your love, through your spirit, so that we may know again the joy of our salvation. And Father, for those of us who are going through those dark periods, would you stir our faith and, and strengthen us to know that even though we feel dark, the reality is that we are right with you and you will never let us go. Father, as we come now to eat the bread and the wine, the bread that points to Jesus' body that was broken for us and his blood that was poured out for us so that our broken bodies may be restored and that our lives may be rescued. May you stir us again as we feed on him by faith. In the name of Jesus, we pray and for his glory. Amen.